Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful again to be here with my friends, Anthony Miller and Brittany Hartley. Um, the two of you, here we are, we're on session seven, I think. The uh, title of this chapter or this session uh, from Jack Cornfield was The Basic Characteristics of Life. And I think the things we're going to talk about today are, are the things we've already hit on, really, in the other, the first six. But let's uh, let's see where this goes. Um, any initial thoughts from either one of you on things that stood out to you in this chapter um, that you guys want to maybe make note of here on the front end of our conversation? So, it, yeah, it feels like we've kind of got the ball rolling in the past six chapters, and this is just kind of continuing the conversation of putting some elements together versus introducing new material. So, um, we, you know, we might repeat some of the things that we've said before in previous chapters, but to me what really stood out is at the very beginning of the chapter he said that uh, – we need to be aware of, you know, how we can be doing spiritual bypassing, which is kind of reading about these things, studying about these things, maybe giving some talk to these kinds of things, but not actually digging into the essence of it, um, which, you know, there's that great quote that says religion is one of the best places to hide from God. And so I really feel like in this chapter, he's combining all these elements together to kind of just show a new way of a being that isn't just talking about these things separately is kind of just what stood out to me. Anthony? Yeah, so I, I searched for it um, uh, to get other points of view about the things that he was talking about. And what I found are the three marks of existence or the three characteristics of existence uh, being impermanence, non-self, and the unsatisfactor, unsatisfactoriness uh, or suffering that we experience in our life. Basically, being able, the three marks or characteristics of existence or a being are, they relate to um, being able to sit with ambiguity and curiosity about things that are happening and not get all wrapped up and have our sense of identity and meaning enmeshed with somehow things being fixed and, and not changing. Although he did give one example, I think that stood out to me in the story of the woman who had her husband pass away, who went to several different spiritual teachers and uh, to, to seek some sort of comfort. And each spiritual teacher had a different story or narrative that they expressed with a high degree of certainty about where her husband was and what he was experiencing. And then finally, she goes to Jack, and and Jack apparently knew better than to not speak with a degree of certainty about uh, death and her husband, and instead asked her questions. And, and the thing that stood out of her answer uh, when he asked, you know, in your heart, what, what do you know to be true? That whether it was the Buddha or Jesus or Mother Mary... Uh, the mother of God or anybody else showed up to you and tried to dispute what you would know to be true in your heart, what would that thing be that you would know in your heart? And her answer was that uh, everything changes. Yeah. And he may, he makes mention of cults in this one, which I think with all of our background in the system we came from at least peaked my ears a little bit. And he talked about how if there's anything that cults do that really is kind of a negative, it's, it's that they express this certainty and it stops this kind of curiosity that occurs 
um, that where we start to try to figure out what's going on in this world that we live in. Uh, I thought that was interesting. And because that story posed it too. here, you had all these teachers and they were expressing certainty that, that this person who had, who'd passed on was succeeding in the plan of salvation of whatever that faith was, you know, and, and yet these stories all contradict each other. And, and as you're pointing out, Anthony, really, what, what is, what do we know? What is, what is absolutely real? And really it's the idea that, you know, everything is changing and, and what you got is what's in front of you at this moment. And nothing is as it seems either. Um, I thought the other story that kind of stuck out to me, and and again, I think this episode, unlike all the other sessions, has Jack focusing really on a couple of points and then using stories uh, and ideas to kind of support those. The other story that I was thinking of is when uh, the teacher takes these kids out into the forest and uh, she challenges these kids to go find <clears throat> things that had lived. And so the kids are bringing you know dead leaves and they're bringing dead bugs and... Um, they bring all this stuff together to make a pile of it. And, and these kids are being challenged by the teacher to talk about why things have to die. And I thought it was a beautiful way because I think when we're young, we don't understand how the world works. I remember being a kid and not really getting it. Like you just, you don't know the rules that you don't know the rules that this world plays by. And so you're constantly trying to figure out what those rules are. And, uh, and death is part of it. And so these kids are accumulating all this dead material and it's such a, I think it's such a soft way to introduce kids to the idea that we humans are going to die too, by doing it with some other thing and whether it be plant material or bugs or whatnot. And when she says, why does this have to happen? And these kids um, being, I think in touch enough with what was around them in that world that they were exploring that day, sense that things have to die so that there's room for other things. And, and I'm often worried. I'm, I'm worried about how short life will be. I, I, I kind of have fears of my own health and I'm not quite a hypochondriac, but I sometimes get lost in those negative, those negative thoughts that come in and say, Hey, maybe it could end tomorrow, or maybe it'll be done in five years. And, and on top of that, sorry, my computer's making a bunch of noises. And on top of that, um, I don't know what's going on. Give me a second. Sorry. Let's just leave that and see what happens. Um, and on top of that, I, I worry about my wife and I worry about my kids and, um, and yet, if everybody lived forever and we kept making new things, there just wouldn't be room for all of us. And so, uh, life has to die so that new life can come forth. And I think that's a big reason why all things age. Um, nobody's meant to be in this in this space forever. And so, we got to make the best of it. Which I know I'm rambling, but it leads to where he talks about sitting lonely. And I'm scared to death of a day where I'll have to sit lonely for days on end or weeks on end or months on end and perhaps years on end. And yet to just sit with things as they are is to me, the overlapping characteristic of life that he speaks of throughout this episode is just to allow things to be any thoughts there. I'm just going to go back to something that stood out earlier and what you said, Bill, I just love this idea. Um, when he was kind of talking about cults, the word that he used that just struck me was he actually used the word betrayal. And that belief in not knowing and depending on others kind of stories for you is not just a mistake, but it, he called it the ultimate betrayal. 
and just how, how, what a shift that is when you're coming from a religious institution who gives you the quote unquote truth is that, um, to, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, someone doing that to you is the ultimate betrayal of the truth that you know, you know, and the truths that we know are, are simple and they're very few, you know, few of us have more than a handful. It'd be something like love is worth living for. Everything is connected. Life is short and sacred. You know, very, very short, uh, sweet truths that come from your heart that you would just say, I know this. And to have someone else give you those things is a betrayal of your own unique voice and truth truth that you have to share with the world. And so I just thought that was a really beautiful shift. Yeah. But I think it might be it might be helpful if we go through kind of the three kind of elements that we talk about or he talked about and kind of break those down. Yeah, I don't have a list of those. I just wrote down like four or five ideas that came across in the podcast. Do you remember what the first one was? Yeah, so, so the, first the first one is impermanence. Imper- yeah. 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 So nothing lasts forever, right? Is that is that what we mean by that, right? Yeah, everything's always changing. He, he said the phrase, uh, "Not always so." So I'm feeling happiness in the mo- in this moment. It's not always so. I feel yeah. a sense of anger. Someone's dying. Someone's coming to life. It's not always so, you know. And so you just don't cling to things that they're supposed to be this way, and this was supposed to be this. And just kind of, you can kind of release yourself from that craving by just saying, "Not always so." This has come up and it will pass. Yeah. And it's, yeah, a very, it's a very different, it's a very different construct or paradigm about things because I think as human beings, we, sen- we, we try to make sense of things. We try to make sense of suffering. We try to make sense of change. We try to make sense of things that are unfair or unjust or unmerciful. And, and so we get, we, we develop narratives or stories or myth traditions, symbols that give us a sense of permanence in spite of the mark of existence or, or the basic characteristic of life is that life is impermanent. And, and like Britt said, there are very few things that I think that you could hold on to and attribute meaning as an unchanging truth. Um, but we spend so much tr- time trying to do that, whether we're saving for having this sense of stability, we're saving for retirement, or we're getting an education for a career, or or people like this idea of families and marriages being eternal. You know, we're just seeking for all of this in spite of the basic characteristic or mark of existence being that impermanence is actually what the design is. And he doesn't say it here, but when he's talking about that betrayal, Brit, and and when he mentions the cults, it, it is this developmental idea, right? On the first half of life, we trust these outer authorities, and they have the answers. And if they don't have the answers, when the answers come, it'll be those those guys that get the answers. And so you have these sources of uh, truth, per se, when in reality, what, what's being challenged here is for us to figure out ourselves what we know rather than trusting what someone else is telling us. And it, it seems like such a big thing for us humans to move from one to the other that I, I can remember how painful that was to let go of all my authorities, even the people who I think are wise, Brene Brown, 
Sam Harris, um, Eckhart Tolle. When when I hear those kinds of guys, uh, those kinds of authorities talking, and they are to some degree an authority, it's a different process now. Now I take what they say and I go back into my own life and I go, does that really ring true? Does that is that something that has held up? Is that something that works? And not just go, I know it works because they told me so. Um, it seems like there's so much here in, in this in this these sessions from Jack on Buddhism that I've come across in lots of other places uh, that he seems to be speaking to the kind of these developmental ideas. What was the uh, what was the second one? Yeah, so uh, so impermanence. I just wanted to say one more thing while we're on impermanence. Um, I wrote down in my notes that he said something like, this is the dance of life. We don't own it or possess it. Um, and I just thought that was really beautiful, that, that it's a dance. You're flowing with it. Um, and that when you hold on to it or grasp or try to possess it, um, that's when you lose it. And it goes back to, uh, and we have, have this idea, I think, in each of the religious traditions, Jesus would say as when you lose your life, you find it. And when you kind of cling to your life, that's when you lose it. Um, and it's just this idea that when you're grasping or trying to possess kind of the flow of life around you, that's that's a struggle that you will lose. All you can do is just kind of give yourself to the dance that is the mystery of life. And that the mystery is that life reinvents itself in every day and every moment and that you can just rise to meet it in each moment. So the next one was suffering and that uh, craving, cre- craving happiness is what creates our unhappiness. And the reminder that in sorrow is our connectedness to humanity that if we didn't feel sad and if we didn't hurt if we didn't suffer with and for one another we would be entirely disconnected from each other and it's part of the human experience mm. yeah he tells a he tells or he relates to the concept that for every child who is healthy and doing well there are children in other places that are not doing well and where human beings have uh, the resources to relieve that suffering, but the suffering still exists because we, I, he doesn't use the word egocentric, but we just need to realize that, that suffering is part of human life and we can strive to uh, alleviate suffering, but it's going to exist regardless. Yeah, he talks there. There's um, a part where he says, like, on the front end of life, as babies, infants, toddlers, we need a lot of help and assistance. And on the back end of life, as you're in an aged body that is heading towards death, you need lots of compassion and assistance and uh, and help as well. And so it only makes sense that when we're in the middle of life, that we should be the ones who are giving the compassion and assistance and the care. And that was a reminder to me. I think you know, here in this Western culture. We we now you know we we constantly are kind of avoiding that hard stuff at times, um, and and not that it's right or wrong. We have the ability in this modern society to have professional caretakers for for children, to have professional caretakers for aged adults, and on some level we get to avoid the work that happened you know ten thousand years ago when 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 children needed cared for by the community. And those who were aged needed cared for by the community. And um, there may be, while that may be hard, difficult things, and maybe it is okay that we we do avoid that to some degree. I think we also miss out on learning things and um, some of that self-sacrifice and some of that giving that I think all humans in the past 
had to do naturally, collectively as groups. And uh, it was a reminder to me to be more sensitive of those in the beginning and end of life and uh, to be more present with what their needs are and to be more um, willing to assist. Anything else in that section? Yeah. So for me, um, this is also a place where there are places where kind of religious or wisdom traditions are are great resources. And there's also places where they can be really big trip ups, right? And so I think when we're talking about suffering, this is a place where sometimes religion can really get in the way, um, especially if you've had a narrative in your religion where uh, I shouldn't be unhappy, right? If I was doing X, Y, Z, I would be happy and I would be blessed, kind of any kind of prosperity gospel, which shows up in most major religions. And the most, you know, and he says this too, is the most unhappiness that you can have is when you are constant craving happiness, um, because then you're not creating any kind of relationship with suffering. All you're doing is running away from it, trying and trying and trying and trying to seek this kind of level of happiness that you feel like you deserve or you feel like you're righteous enough to have. And that is just a cycle of just perpetual suffering. And that's why we see uh, in some religious communities, you know, really high levels of depression, particularly among women who just burn out in this cycle of I should be happier than I am. And it's because they just we just haven't given them the tools of creating a healthy relationship with suffering. All we do is kind of try to put unicorns and rainbows on top of it. And then it doesn't work. And then we wonder what's wrong with me? Why am I so unhappy? Um, so this is a place where, you know, some religion, you know, some of your religious past can really kind of trip you up from making a really healthy relationship with both your happiness and your suffering and being able to kind of sit in a, in a really balanced and settled place, um, that allows for both of those to be present in your life. Yeah. I just had this morning, I've got a, one of my kids, sometimes struggles with their emotions and uh, she was dealing with a hard thing. She's got a, uh, a boyfriend who has gone into boot camp for the military <clears throat> and he's gone, he's away. And when he does call, he's having a hard time. He's struggling with that process as I think all people in that process do. And so she's feeling that emotional burden. And normally I would, you know, if you went back 20 years ago, my normal answer would have been get over it. Let's move on. Let's just, you know, put a smile on her face. Let's, pull up our pants and let's just take on the day. And this time I was different. I said, how about we just sit with that for a minute? Let's just, let's just sit with that. And let's just feel that for a moment. Cause we don't have to feel it all day. And if, and, and, and you know, as well as I know daughter, that at some point today, that feeling will subside and your brain will naturally move on to other things that are going on in your life. But since it's on your mind right now, let's just sit here with it. And it actually allowed her to very healthy go like, Oh, like that I can do that. Like, okay, I'm sitting with that. It, it doesn't feel good, but it's, I'm not dying. Like it, it isn't really killing me. Um, we sometimes use those kinds of phrases when we're describing these hurtful emotions, but if we can treat the emotion as if it's not really us, it's something we're just happening to feel at this moment. Um, it doesn't change its intensity, but I do think it, it changes its attachment to us. And, uh, and I think that does get interesting, uh, when we do things like that, because again, going back to what I said, the, um, the, there are bad days and there are times where really tragic things are going to happen in our life. We may end up with some illness or disease that is debilitating. We may lose a loved one. We may suffer some sort of tragedy or crisis that just lasts some time. 
And to be able to just sit there with those negative emotions, realizing like, hey, this is life right now. It probably won't be life in a day and it certainly won't be life in a year, but it's life right now. And uh, I don't know. There's just something about becoming more capable to handle those kinds of things when you see things from that angle. Um, Any other thoughts on this number two? What's the third one? So the third one is impersonality. And this is one where I feel like you have to be, you get a lot of misconceptions. I certainly did when I was kind of dabbling into Buddhism um, because I kind of had this conception that impersonality means like you're pretending like you don't exist, which which just felt really counterintuitive. Like, of course, like I'm a bundle of cells right here. And so it was, this one was a little bit confusing to me when I first started. Um, but it's, it's just that it, this idea that, um, before the world named you, before your gender was given to you, before your family and your country claimed you, had certain thoughts running in your brain and you had experiences, um, before all of that, it was some, you were something. And all of these things combine, all of these things that were given, you know, my name and, and my my past and my family, all these things were given to me. Um, and it combines in a certain way that makes me feel like I'm a permanent thing that lives behind my eyes in my brain. And I am a permanent self. This is me, Brittany Hartley. I've always been like this. And what happens is if it, it's an illusion, and what happens is that stuck in that illusion in in your own personality this is who i am and i've always been that way it will it will at some point limit your ability to grow it'll little limit your ability to make connections your if you're republican or democrat and you've made that your identity if you have a religious box then you've made that your identity um now we're seeing your, you know, your social media profile and the ego that's attached to your social media and defending that all the time and the anxiety that you get trying to portray a certain image. And when you let all that go, um, there's a freedom of sitting just in consciousness, sitting in what you were before um, you were given a certain identity. And there's a freedom that exists in that space. So that's how I would explain it. But how would, what, what stood up to you for impersonality? So on Wikipedia, it, it refers to that particular characteristic as the doctrine of non-self, that there's no unchanging permanent self or soul in living beings and no abiding essence in anything or ph- phenomenon. Um indicating that we're kind of part of a greater whole. So there's a few things that came to my mind as I was listening to that section, as well as reading about uh, these ideas uh, online. The The first thing is, from a developmental framework, um, I, I noticed that when people go through an existential crisis or an existential faith and identity crisis, that it's not uncommon that as as they experience that deconstruction, they also experience this enhanced sense of empathy and connection with everything and everyone around them. There's like some sort, as the paradigms crumble on us, it's not uncommon for people just to see every human being, every thing in nature as having infinitely greater value because it's not filtered through our past paradigms. And um, I think part of that might relate to this idea of, of non-self in that 
we recognize that we're part of a greater whole and our egocentric sense of being an unchanging being or spirit or identity goes through a deconstruction and then we hopefully reconstruct some sort of connection with other things. Um, the other thing that, that uh, I thought about as I was listening to this session over and over and reading things online is I had a conversation this last week with an online friend who's getting a PhD in neuropsychology. And we were talking about different religious systems, and we we're talking about Buddhism and Eastern thought, Western thought, and talking about best outcomes in terms of quality of life and impact on community and society. And, and it was interesting because what he shared was, depending on the metrics that get used, best outcomes actually... Uh, from a developmental stage, have periods where individuals are sense that they're rugged individualists. They they sense uh, control or influence on their outcomes, so they really stretch and they set goals and they get involved in in political structures, whether it's politics or education or work or in religious settings and so forth. And, and they stretch and they put in the work and and. And, and they do create a lot of positive results. And what my friend indicated is that if we, his view, I think this was based on the metrics that he was using, that if we started with a doctrine of non-self, we might not developmentally receive or achieve the same outcomes. And I was kind of struggling with that and sitting with that. But that also fits into the developmental framework of Fowler's stages of faith or the kind of things that Thomas McConkie talks about, um, or, um, you know, uh, the, 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 what, what is it? The pyramid that the top of the pyramid is self-actualization. Um, in Maslow's any event, hierarchy. Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah. So from a developmental standpoint, it, it seems like maybe for human beings, there is some value in operating as rugged individualists um, for a period of time. But from a developmental standpoint, just like a kid at some point in their lives learns what sarcasm is, where before they didn't realize it, or at some point they develop increased capacity for nuance. As human beings, maybe at some point we developed an increased capacity to be able to sit with ambiguity, to recognize our non-self and our interconnection with all beings and things, but that it's part of an overall process. And where it tends to get painful is when it's much, much later in life and our sense of identity and community and meaning is all enmeshed with the fixed things that are contrary to these three characteristics. And then what becomes painful is when we experience an existential faith or identity crisis, when those things crumble and we move to our next phase of development without recognizing on the front end that this is actually the design or the characteristic of existence. Yeah. And, and you guys are hitting on, I think the more, um, the, the deeper aspects of this third one. For me, it was also just a realization that, you know, we have things and we, we live in a house and we have clothes and we've got, um, you know, objects, things that we've purchased. And, and the reality is we didn't bring any of it into this world. We don't take any of it out. It's the old cliche. And that, so none of these things are parts of you. They're just objects or pieces of matter that you get to 
uh, have be part of your experience in a certain given moment, but that you shouldn't be defining yourself or understanding yourself as the person who has these things. Um, again, I, I think it's just it's such a small point compared to the two ideas you guys both raised, but it was something that came up for me when they were talking about number three. Um, any other thoughts here? Again, I, I don't expect this episode to be super long, so I guess I just want to catch and see if there's anything that you two think we're missing that needs to be added in. Otherwise, I do think we kind of covered the the main gist of, of this conversation. I'll do I'll do one short little rabbit hole that I kind of went on on this one, which is um, the concept of panpsychism is kind of where the Dalai Lama and Buddhist leaders and neuroscientists are talking about right now. And I think it's just interesting to note because anytime leaders, uh, you know, scientific leaders and religious leaders are getting together and talking a common language, It's that's a place where I want to make sure that I'm listening. Because if science and religion are coming together in a place, um, it's it's to me, it's a place worth exploring. And so right now, there are just tons just in um, just kind of our current events, there are tons of conversations going on between, uh, you know, Buddhist leaders and, and neuroscientists about the concept of consciousness. And so for me, this this concept of impersonality really lends really easily to uh, conversations in science around consciousness. And so panpsychism is the idea that all things have an element of consciousness. Uh, because Because scientists have found that to put squishy matter together and kind of expect it to turn the light on just doesn't make sense. And that's apparently not how it works it seems the lights are on all the way down it's experience all the way down and so this idea it shows up in greek philosophy and paganism um, now in science and um, for thousands of years in buddhism this has been an idea that it's experience all the way down um and so it is something to be like the spider that you're about to smush on the counter it is something to be like a cell in your body Um, And you can kind of go off in the weeds a little bit, but people who really go down this line of Buddhism, where they really get into this idea of impersonality and consciousness, what it does, the effect that it has is that it makes you really, really compassionate and changes your actions towards all sentient life. And it makes you really connected. So it's it's something really interesting to dig into specifically for people who have kind of always felt disconnected to their body or the earth or just you just kind of feel lonely and disconnected in general. Um, panpsychism is a place that, that a lot of different people are talk- talking about right now because we understand consciousness and it's a place where Buddhists especially have a lot to say about the conversation because of this concept of impersonality and that they've sensed through these meditation techniques over thousands of years that that you are something beneath the I, beneath the identity, beneath the ego um, and that if everything is like that then it is something like to be a tree and how does that treat how does that change your relationship to that tree? So anyway, it's it's a little bit off in the you know it's a little bit of rabbit off into the weeds, but I find it very interesting because um, Buddhism will come up in these scientific conversations about consciousness, and I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So these three things for me, these three things that I remember about five years ago when I was in the depths of an existential faith and identity crisis, and I had 
friends who had traversed this tell me that one of my best answers was to study the secular application of Buddhist principles. And I I couldn't understand that because I was deconstructing church history and I was deconstructing Christianity and world history and linguistics and all those kinds of biblical studies and development and all that kind of stuff to try to make sense of things. And part of that, I think, was that my natural tendency was to seek uh, permanence, to make sense of things, to try to bypass suffering of and pain, and to try to maintain this idea of an unchanging self, even though I was changing, and it was it was really painful. And now looking back, I understand why these kinds of discussions and these kinds of things are actually um, can be quite helpful to people who are going through what I went through. Um, because it increases our capacity to deal with the changes that are happening in our lives, as well as um, to be able to retain and engage in relationships with people that are still part of a system that no longer works for us. Um, And part of that pain of differentiation uh, that people experience seem to be related to some of these three things. And, And then learning about and putting into practice an understanding of these three things reduces the dissonance and pain over time. And that's why I had so many friends suggest that I study these things. Yeah, it, it does seem as though when we have some sense of empathy, and empathy, I think, is developed as one of these tools, um, when you begin to become more present and more aware of the world around you, and you begin to sense that other human beings whose lives are very different in a whole host of ways are really just you under a whole other set of circumstances and a different history, a different tradition. And and you come into these spaces much more compassionate and kind. And, and so there's there's value here for the person. So if the listener is, is going like, okay, what's this whole thing about? And, and as we've been saying here for now, this is the seventh one, that you end up becoming a healthier person as you move through the world. But you're not only healthier in how you handle your own disturbances, but you now are ready to kind of be an extension of what other people need to deal with their hardships in life too. And, you know, I know very well that in your lives, and I certainly see it in mine, that this just feels like a better way to live. Um, I don't feel like I'm avoiding more tragedy. I don't feel like I'm avoiding more hard moments, but I feel like I now have better tools to move through those hard moments Um without them disrupting me to the point where I'm showing up in the world in ways that I don't like. And so this feels like it has real life application to it almost every day now, uh, maybe every day in my life. And I'm I'm sure that you two would attest to the same. Let me just add, you guys added both added something just vulnerable and personal from your lives. And I just kind of want to meet that vulnerability. So for me, the, the thing that really changed my life with this material was, you know, I I have a master's degree in theology. I've spent 20 solid years of my life studying about God and religions and what is the right way and the truth and the meaning of life. And I've and I just got stuck there um, for years because I couldn't quite step into life until I felt that I had a permanent understanding of what it was. And I wasted just years and years just trying to um, kind of define the perfect 
metaphysical system that described everything, you know, the, the string theory of religion, you know, I spent 20 years looking for that and it didn't necessarily make me happier. It didn't really make me a better person. Um, and at the end, it just kind of, I just sat back and realized, you know, however I've been going about this, I'm not getting anywhere. And it wasn't until I could just let go and just kind of step into the mystery of life and step into just kind of openness and present moment and letting go of having to have, you know, a, a, a personal identity that is kind of wrapped around some specific truth. Once I let that go, that's when my life changed. That's when my spirituality really took off. Um, but it was a lot of time and headspace kind of going about it in a way that wasn't um, really fruitful for me. And, you know, two solid decades of kind of going about it in a different so that's just kind of how uh, for people who spend a lot of time in headspace and kind of like me, maybe were hesitant of jumping into something until they could fully understand it. There's there's um, there's real beauty that comes in meeting the mystery of life in each moment that can be really transformative if you can let go of some of those kind of identity and permanent truth kind of ideas that can really um, just kind of stop your progression. So that would be how this has influenced my life. Beautiful. Yeah. Love it. Love it. I, I, the whole reason for starting this was knowing that, you know, the three of you, including Jana here, the, the three of you were utilizing these kinds of principles and I could see you guys uh, becoming more, healthy in how you were dealing with issues in your own personal life, as well as the issues that we all kind of wrestle with together uh, in, in the arena of having left a system. And, and I, I see real life application. I wanted, I wanted people to get to taste this because it's not just Jack Cornfield, right? It is Eckhart Tolle. It is Brene Brown. It's all of these wisdom teachers out there who are teaching real stuff and and Buddhism seems to do a good job of laying these principles out that you can start to sense it all over the place. And uh, and it's just a better way to live. I Again, my life isn't really that much different other than I feel a whole lot better about me. And I feel like I'm a lot healthier person to others uh, in the world that I live in now. Let's just go ahead and close out. This has been uh, session seven, kind of going over Jack Cornfield's material. And uh, just appreciate the conversation with you too. Uh, we've got a few more left to go, um, and some of them really are deep, and and some of them I think will be more like this one where it's a little more surface kind of idea that we're just all pulling examples out. But I appreciate your guys' time, and um, I think these conversations, we've gotten some comments back from folks that this has been really valuable to people think about Buddhism. And I'll say that when I was in my system 20 years ago, all religions were false, and my religion was the one true religion. And I never really gave things like Buddhism even any spot in my head to even consider it. And here I am on this side of life, and I think there's so much to be said for these traditions that have been around so much longer. They seem to have worked out um, getting away a little bit from the myth and recognizing its myth and finding the real principles that that people, no matter where they're at, can base their lives on and kind of having those things kind of float to the surface. Um I, I think this stuff's really helpful to people if they take it seriously. So again, thanks for your time and uh, appreciate you guys being on today. Thanks, Bill. We all appreciate that you're doing this journey so publicly. You help a lot of people. So thanks for hosting yeah. these conversations. Yeah. Thanks for being part yeah. of them. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, have a great day, you guys. We'll see you next time.